News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I didn't think it was possible for the race to get even tighter, but as we head into the final few days of this federal election campaign, that is exactly what has happened. So let's break down the latest numbers of where we are at. Joining us now is Daryl Brooker, the president of Ipsos Public Affairs. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning, Simi. So this race has actually tightened up even more from the last time we talked to you. What happened? Uh, I think that what we're seeing is the effects of the prime minister finally getting some passion into his campaign and fighting back. Uh, and as a result, he's uh, he's caused a bit of a wobble in the numbers. Not enough to get him into a position where he's going to win the majority that he was talking about, but uh, um, uh, certainly he's competitive and could very well uh, eke out a plurality of seats and hold on to another minority government. Right, because last week it was the Conservatives in a slight lead. But what do you? Where do you have things at right now? Tied thirty-two, thirty-two, as squeaky tight as you can possibly get it. But. Uh, even though it looks a little bit like the numbers did in the last election campaign, the distribution of votes are actually quite different. So it really is clearly a toss-up right now as to who is going to uh, win the most seats. Okay, what do you mean the distribution is different? Well, last time around, the Conservatives had a really inefficient vote. They, they overperformed in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan. So their national numbers, they actually finished ahead of the Liberal Party in the last election campaign, but they trailed the Liberals by about 9 or 10 points in Ontario, and you don't win when you do that. Uh, this time around, uh, the Conservative Party is actually down a fair amount in Western Canada. Um, and But in Ontario, they find themselves really close to the Liberal Party, only four points difference. But the difference this time is not that the Conservative Party has done a lot better in Ontario, it's that the NDP has. And they've taken a bunch of votes away from the Liberal Party. And that's the biggest change we've seen in this election campaign, see me, is the, uh, since the last election, the, the NDP has risen from 16 points to 21 in our polling. Okay, and so does that translate into more seats for the NDP at this point? It should, if they're able to deliver that uh, that uh, vote on Election Day. But the problem that the NDP, and we've seen this specifically in provincial elections in British Columbia uh, in a couple of previous elections, where they poll a lot better than they actually perform. Right. Uh, and when you take a look at uh, NDP voters, they tend to be people who are less attached to the political system, less uh, less habitual voters. They tend to be younger, uh, you know, uh, renters, people who are... Um, when they're excited about a campaign, they'll get out, but when they're not, they won't. So the question around this time is, are they excited? We also know that that group, younger voters, are the most um, concerned about the risks associated with going out and voting in person. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, what about BC in particular? What's it, what does it look like here? Oh, it's squeaky tight. I mean, they're, they're, all three parties are within three or four points of each other. Uh, and so it'll come down to, again, whether or not any of the parties are able to turn out their vote. The NDP is doing really well. The Liberals are holding on, and the Conservatives are down from where they were in the last election campaign, but uh, still very close to the other two parties. Is it the tightest in B.C., or does it look that way in other provinces and regions as well? Uh, it's it's also very tight in Quebec, but not with three parties with two. The Bloc and the uh, and the and the uh, the Liberals are neck and neck in in the province of Quebec. Uh, every other place, there's a pretty clear lead. In Atlantic Canada, it's the uh, Liberal Party, uh, and when you get to Ontario, as I said before, it's uh, close between the Liberals and the Conservatives. Uh, when you get to the Prairies, the Conservatives are doing well, really well. So it could come down to BC on election night. Now, when you break it down in age group, for instance, in that you know all important kind of 35 to 54, how are people leaning? 
Uh, people in that group are divided, just like the Canadian population is. But the older you get, the more likely it's to be Tory. The younger you get, it's more likely to be NDP or Liberal. Oh, interesting. Okay, so in other regions, even in the Atlantic Canada region, though, I noticed the NDP seem to be doing much better than they usually do. Yeah, they have. Uh, overall, nationally, I mean, you've increased your support by 5%. You're going to see some effects everywhere. Um, but where we're seeing the biggest effect is in places like Ontario, where they're doing a lot better than they were in the last election campaign. And that is what, at the moment, would deprive the Liberals of their majority. Wow. So does this look a lot to you at this point like what we saw a couple of years ago, Daryl, or is it, does the situation look different? Uh, it doesn't look like the Liberals are in a position to win the same number of seats, even if they do win a plurality. And it's really a toss-up at the moment as to whether the Liberals or the Conservatives will win the most seats, and it'll come down to who can get their vote out. Now, normally, you're supposed to say that as kind of like a disclaimer, like a, you know, a margin of error or whatever. Um, but this time around, it really is the case. We're, we're in a pandemic. People are voting in different ways. For example, we saw an announcement from Elections Canada yesterday that oh, you know, over 18% uh, uh, increase in advanced poll turnout in this election campaign. Does that mean that People who are going to vote on Election Day are voting now, or does it mean we're going to have a really big turnout on Election Day? It's really hard to say. Oh, we will have to see. Daryl, thanks so much for that this morning. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, that is a great song. All right, let's chat with our Raji Stillhall this morning. We are talking election issues. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. It's funny, you asked earlier in the show that because we're so close to the federal election, have any of our main issues changed and issues of importance to us? And I think what a roller coaster this campaign yes. has been. It's been tight and short in duration, but all over the map. And I would have thought, for example, during the wildfires, that climate change would be number one for all leaders, for right? many voters. And then, of course, when all those unmarked graves were discovered, uh, uncovered, that reconciliation would be top of mind for a lot of people. And then, like you mentioned, that has really changed. And I'll tell you why I was so unhappy with the candidates uh, during this campaign, because the debates were rife with accusations. They often are. But it was at times like watching contestants on a game show just trying to knock each other down. And I think it would have been really incredible if we had taken this pandemic, this uh, time of extenuating circumstances to do something different with leadership. If the leaders had, instead of knocking each other down, if they could have showed us, showed the voters where the consensus is. I would have loved to have seen that. I would have loved to have seen an NDP leader tell the conservatives what they're doing right, but where where else they could take it. Right. Right. That's what I, I thought, too. It. Nobody has mentioned all of that is like, OK, I, I, I get that you did this, but here's what we would do. And this is why it would be better. I've, I've been asking people this morning about like what you were saying there, Raji, about, well, what issue has been missed in the selection that you wish had been talked about? And I got some interesting responses from people. Uh, let's see here. Herman wrote me to say the subject that I think is being missed and is the elephant in the room is the debt which I think is legit because lots of people are concerned and all parties, including the conservatives don't seem to be too concerned about deficits for the next yeah. 10 years. So I get hear that about debt more in other elections. Yeah. Not in this one. Um, Alex also wrote and said the two Michaels, where oh, yes. is that? <laughs> yeah. 
Good point. Yeah. Uh-huh. Good point, Alex. I thought so, too. The relationship with China, the two Michaels, everything that's been going on has not been as much of an issue as I thought it would be. Uh, and um, also, I got somebody else, uh, Paul, who wrote to say climate change. Another, as you were saying, too, is that you're right. All this discussion about climate change, the heat dome that we had here, all the wildfires, and everybody was saying, oh, that's going to be top of mind during the campaign. And it didn't really work out that way, did it? No. And then, you know, people often say that they are voting for their next, the next generation, voting for what they think will help out their kids or their grandkids. And uh, if they don't even have on planning kids, uh, plan on having kids themselves, that they just hope for a better future. So they vote for the next gen. Makes sense. But then with the polls having been all over the place, I feel like a lot of people are trying to follow the polls to make a decision rather than going on the uh, topics oh, you think that so? concern them. I think so. And we know polls do not predict the future, right? They just describe with some degree of certainty the the very recent past and that that can change the, uh, that can change the next week. So yeah, just... It's, I feel like this has been a very interesting and different election campaign. Also, what polls don't tell you is for people who are kind of struggling with their decision, maybe they're leaning one way, maybe they even think that they're going to vote one way. When they get there and they have that piece of paper and that little pencil in front of them and they look at that piece of paper, they may change their mind. They I wonder and, how often that happens. Oh, there's a saying here in BC, we used to call it um, way back when, the 15-minute Socred. Right. And that was because of all the years where we would elect SoCred government after SoCred mm-hmm. government. And the joke was that in the years in between, that same person who voted SoCred would tell you they were never going to vote SoCred ever again. <laughs> they would never, ever do it. And then they'd get in the voting booth and they'd go, oh, it's last time and vote it, you know, one more time. And so that was the saying when I was growing up, the 15 minute SoCred. And I think it does happen sometimes. People get in there and they go, yeah, but is that really what I want? No, I'm just going to do this. So that's what I'm looking at on election day is are there going to be people who get into that voting booth and decide, no, I can't do it. I'm going to vote this. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see how many people will vote out of anger this time. I've seen a lot of people who just online, just from observing and and listening to people, I'm hearing a lot of I was a lifelong fill in the blank and I've heard all the parties now. And I'm just so mad at them for not having done enough, or I'm so mad at them for how they campaigned specifically that I am voting for someone different. I think there's a legitimate basis for that for the two major parties. Like if you're a, you could say you are a longtime liberal or you've always voted liberal and you're not going to do it again because there's certainly things that have happened in the last, right, five or six years that would make you feel that way. And you Mm -hmm. could say that if you were a longtime conservative and had always voted that way, some of the promises that Aaron O'Toole has has made are very moderate, right, are very middle of the road. And that may not sit well with people who have voted a long, been longtime conservatives too. So I feel like there's a lot of, um, you know, evidence out there on both sides that there could be some changing back and forth. So for you, Raji, though, the issue has been you wish more discussion about climate change? Absolutely. I mean, I've got little children, but not just that for myself, too. Uh, Climate change can't wait. I want to see climate change right now. And I don't want to see, you know, moderate, safe measures. I want them to be drastic. I've felt that way before. But after our wildfires, uh, we can't forget what has happened in BC with these wildfires. We cannot forget it and just be like, oh, it's fall and soon it'll be winter. And we'll worry about that next year. No, it we need change now and it needs to be taken seriously. I want to see it taken seriously by all the parties. This isn't, uh, it shouldn't be a partisan issue. Agreed on that too. I thought, I definitely thought reconciliation would be talked about more 
Um, I also thought climate change would be talked about more. I thought childcare would be talked about more, you know, and this was such a huge issue going into the campaign and it hasn't gotten a lot of traction since. You know, the way that all the parties have talked about childcare has not been thorough. The economics have not been explained. When we know that you look at societies uh, around the globe that have spent on invested in childcare, the outcome is always better for the economy. And you don't hear that argument being made in, uh, by any yeah. of the parties. Instead, I, what I've heard is, oh, it's great for families. Yeah. Well, no, it's good for the economy. You've got to make smart economic choices, too. Especially with this tight labor market, right? It's definitely an incentive. Uh, Raji, thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about other issues that have been going on all during this federal election campaign and what's been happening. Well, the Cullen Inquiry has continued to hear testimony thinking about that issue of money laundering and how it has impacted our province. And in particular, the last week has been really fascinating. So joining us now for more on that is Sam Cooper, investigative journalist for Global News. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. So who have we been hearing from in the last week? The the major one was Ross Alderson. He was the former uh, director of anti-money laundering with the Lottery Corporation. He, there's been a lot of anticipation for his testimony and also, you know, the, the issue that he didn't appear for, for a long time when, when uh, he was summoned. So finally, uh, he uh, he's in Australia now. He testified for two days last week. And Simi, I'll start by saying, because it, it came up quite a bit in his testimony, Mr. Alderson did leak important records to me that uh, informed many of my reports, both at the Vancouver Sun and Global News. And uh, he explained his reasons. He said that there would not have been a Cullen Commission in his belief if these records that really revealed, uh, you know, egregious details and also named names he said the, the inquiry wouldn't have happened had uh, we not pushed out these investigative reports in the public interest. And I have to say, uh, from my view, I agree with him. But on to the really important matters. Uh, in my view, his testimony uh, was a bombshell because he referred to his notes of a meeting with his bosses at the Lottery Corporation in 2011 Sorry about a uh, an action he had taken in 2011 to try to interview and potentially bar one of these high rollers at River Rock Casino right. that came in with a bag of a hundred thousand in cash. Alderson tried to stop it. Uh, his note said, and we've heard from other witnesses that a casino manager complained. Alderson and his colleagues were then called in to a meeting with the brass at BCLC. And uh, they were ordered never again to question these high rollers with bags of cash. Uh, Alderson's note said that one of his bosses said, uh, it's all about the revenue. We, uh, we, we saw other notes where he said that BCLC's then CEO, Michael Graydon, also pressured his staff and said, again, you can't bar these high rollers at River Rock Casino. The casino management there has been complaining, and this will impact revenue. So in my mind, what that established, along with Alderson's colleagues who have also testified based on their notes, is there was pressure from the top of the casino at the center, and there was pressure from the top of the Lottery Corporation to let this suspected dirty cash keep rolling in. Remember, the Cullen Commission, uh, they're struck with the duty of uh, determining whether inaction enabled money laundering to occur in uh, BC casinos. 
And I think Alderson's uh, testimony and his notes, which were shown in the inquiry, uh, they're, they're sort of a slam dunk, Simi. Oh, absolutely. That's why I was so fascinated following along, too. So essentially, everything, Sam, that we thought was happening, the worst things, the bags full of money showing up at the front door of the casino, Ross Alderson is telling us, yes, that did happen. He, he said over and again, uh, it happened and it was known. Another uh, uh, assertion he made was that BC Lottery Corporation's board knew this so well. They even had a, a funny music put to a video in which a high roller was struggling with the weight of a bag of cash he was carrying into the casino. So there was all kinds of evidence, some of it uh, somewhat humorous Wait. in a very bad what? way, such yeah. as that assertion. But notebooks that said that the brass right at the top of the casino, the owner, uh, the BCLC brass, knew this was happening. In fact, they were warned by a former RCMP officer who was on their staff. These high rollers, many of them were known to be associated to uh, high-level drug trafficking investigations. Alderson's evidence uh, put another nail uh, in that case that this was known at the highest level. This was suspected drug money. I got to tell you, Sam, that one, my mouth fell open when you just said that because I hadn't heard that part before, that they were making fun of this at the highest levels of BCLC. They didn't think something was suspicious. They didn't think there was anything wrong with that. Well, uh, that's just one of those lines that came out in two days of testimony. My jaw dropped as well. I had never heard that. I've heard a lot of allegations, but that one speaks to uh, what Alderson called a level of indifference. It's not that it was not known that this is suspected drug money. He said many of the people in the corporation are former, uh, you know, elite police officers. Uh, he said staff, there wasn't, it wasn't quiet. Staff believed this was crime proceeds. Uh, staff, some of them warned their bosses. Their bosses are smart people. They knew this, Alderson said. So the key here is he said they were indifferent. They were, uh, in a legal terminology, uh, Mr. Alderson's notes in one of the records that came up said that they will be, the Lottery Corporation will be accused of willful blindness. And his testimony, along with a number of others, I believe does prove that case. Now it's up for uh, Commissioner Cullen to, to put his uh, opinion forward, whether it was right. proven or not. So what happened with Ross Alderson then, Sam? So did he leave his job? Like, obviously, he was a whistleblower and he tried to raise awareness of this. But what happened to his career as a result of that? He testified that, uh, again, after he leaked records, to myself, it came up in testimony. He said that he was so, that a few reasons why he leaked the records, and I'll get to the answer of your question, but he said that he was so concerned about the OV, opioid overdose crisis, real estate in BC, and that he knew because he worked with police, this was related to this transnational scheme in which VIP gamblers come in, they get money from drug dealers, and they gamble the casino. And he said he was concerned. Not only was there, were there connections to organized crime, he said he knew there were connections to People's Republic of China officials and the Chinese Communist Party. So he, the, his reasons to leak were that. He also wanted to show that he was taking some actions. His team was doing, uh, was taking actions, but he felt overall in BC's government there was indifference. 
So he lost his job. He was caught for leaking these records after my story started to come out. Uh, he essentially uh, testified that he had little choice but to resign. He said he went through a lot of grief and pain, and then he went. Uh, he he could not get a job after he lost that that uh, you know good paying job in Canada. He eventually went to Australia with his Canada for new work, and that led to a period where uh, he wasn't. Uh, answering a summons or, or looking at his email to answer a summons. So there was a lot of testimony about why didn't you show up? And uh, he said, look, I'm here now. That's a moot point, And I'm here to testify. Oh, man, I, I feel for him. Do you feel, Sam, is his testimony seem to you like it really is the kind of the smoking gun in this Cullen inquiry? In addition to his colleagues who also, one of them took notes of this key meeting, in my view, that we talk, I talked about in 2012, Remember, investigators, it's their job to follow Canada's anti-money laundering laws. Otherwise, why run casinos? Uh, They were told you cannot question suspected money laundering of bags of cash from their bosses. Another uh, investigator in his notes said uh, it was the former great Canadian president, Rod Baker, who complained to Lottery Corp management. So there's a a number of, uh, we have a a weight of a number of people testifying we were ordered not to investigate money laundering. Again, one more point that has come up. Uh, Alderson said, uh, I, I, I asked for action. I asked for the type of measure that Peter German uh, eventually asked for, and that is uh, that gamblers have to verify the source of this cash coming in. Uh, Alderson recommended this in 2015. His bosses didn't follow that recommendation. And really, uh, serious actions inside the casino, barring of uh, gamblers with known connections to organized crime, doesn't happen until Alderson tells his bosses about this big e-pirate investigation. He testified. And yet still, after Alderson's team started to bar and question these uh, suspicious VIPs, Again, we've heard that casino bosses and uh, Alderson, a former BCLC CEO complained this would kill revenue. Why are you questioning these gamblers that you say are connected to organized crime and suspicious cash? So I believe, I do believe, uh, I can't see uh, a reasonable lawyer that would disagree. The case of uh, turning a blind eye to this dirty money was proven. Wow. You know, Sam, I feel like every time I talk to you, I shake my head during the entire time of the interview. (laughs) It's unbelievable. It really is. It really, really is. Okay, so very quickly, what happens now with the Cullen Inquiry? Now we will, uh, in in mid-October, I believe it's scheduled that the various parties uh, will, that is the, the Cullen Commission lawyers and also the lawyers for the various casinos and the Lottery Corporation will make their closing arguments you know, in simple terms, they will tell Commissioner Cullen what they believe has been proven. Or if they've faced serious allegations, that is that uh, the lawyers will say why they why they shouldn't be uh, accused of these things or held to account. And then uh, Commissioner Cullen will go away for a few months, sift. There's been there's over a thousand exhibits filed in this inquiry, uh, Simi, and so many hours of testimony. Uh, Commissioner Cullen has the mammoth job of sifting all the evidence and then coming back in December with his uh, findings and recommendations. All right, Sam, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Sam Cooper, once again, investigative journalist for Global News. You can read more of his stories and read all about the Cullen Inquiry and the coverage there at globalnews.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. 
We're down to the final days of the election campaign here. We vote on Monday, if you haven't already. But still, there's a lot of issues that many people feel like didn't get enough discussion in this campaign. And I've been hearing from you on that topic all morning long. So send me what you think deserved more time from the candidates, uh, simi at cknw.com. Now, there's also a lot of businesses, business owners out there who feel the same thing, that there are issues top of mind that is going to influence how they vote. The Greater Vancouver Board of Trade has just released a new poll on that. So we thought, let's talk more about it. Bridget Anderson joins us now, CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Good morning, Bridget. Good morning, Simi. So what have businesses told you about what they are concerned about? Well, there's no question that there still remains a really heightened level of anxiety and concern and uncertainty about the fall and the winter and the months ahead. And that's uh, in big part because of the rising cost of goods, everything from food to sporting equipment to semiconductors for vehicles. There's a labor shortage that is acute across many industries. And then businesses are looking at all of this and really concerned about the potential for the increase in taxes to pay for all the COVID recovery. Okay. And so they're also, I noticed, interested in the climate crisis. And, you know, we heard from a lot of people this morning who individually also felt like that didn't get enough discussion. Absolutely. So I think we all know after the summer we've had of the wildfires and the heat dome that climate change is a significant concern and it is urgent and it is right here. So there's strong consensus among our greater Vancouver businesses uh, and, and residents as well, because we did survey both the general population and businesses and both are saying that the next federal government, whoever that is, should be focusing more on climate change. You know, and we do see ourselves as a leader in some of these solutions. And so there are calls for more low carbon innovation in our province and to see businesses for government to really support businesses and to be able to step up to make the adjustments that need to be made. Yeah, let's talk about some of those economic issues then under pandemic recovery. You also asked businesses about how they felt about whether or not the Canadian economy is on the right track. What did they tell you? Uh, well, we've got uh, a pretty mixed view. So about a third of businesses believe that the economy is on the right track. Um, and, and, and about, you know, a third saying that it's not really on the right track. And, and then as many is unsure. So it really is a mixed picture. And, and, you know, one of the points that really drives this home is that we know that the increase in debt taken on by many of our small businesses in our region estimates at nearly about $140,000 on average in the last many years. And so then you look at that in, in, in when you factor in what's happened in the pandemic. And so many small, medium, large businesses, all of them are saying, you know, this is a pretty bumpy road ahead. We thought we'd be further along in the, in the recovery, but there's still many, many problems that are facing businesses. We've got subsidies ending and it's not getting back to normal yet. So what is it going to look like, which is where that anxiety and the uncertainty comes in? Right. So let's talk about the environment issues here, too, because it certainly sounds like many Vancouver businesses say they're worried about, you know, what, what impacts climate change is going to have on the environment. There's no question. Um, the, the environment and the economy are so clearly linked. And so businesses and the general population are really calling on the next federal government, whoever it is, to make sure that there are uh, specific initiatives in their platform to be able to address climate change. 
you know, there are things that, that the government can be do around helping uh, develop local clean technologies, for example, and, and, and really helping accelerate uh, for businesses to be able to adopt the changes that they need to. And let's talk about housing, because I know you were discussing that with businesses. And, and affordability, those are issues really, Bridget, wouldn't you say, that businesses have also turned their attention to? Because it's pretty hard to attract workers if workers can't live in a near, relatively near to where they are working. Well, pre-pandemic, Cindy, about 60% of businesses in our region reported having trouble recruiting and retaining workers. And that was really directly linked to the high cost of living in Metro Vancouver. And we know that the situation has only got worse and it came through very clearly in our survey. And so there are lots of concerns here. We've got a labor shortage that is uh, is most acutely felt in the tourism sector, but it is uh, in other industries and in retail and many other frontline workers, there is a shortage. And so that you compound that with the rising cost of housing and affordability in our region. These are critical concerns for employers. So we, we do know that there ha- we did a housing report in 2019 that had many recommendations. There's also the BC Canada expert panel on housing with many recommendations, including changing fees on property development, expanding the supply of housing, uh, affordable housing. So there are many things here for the government to be able to address whoever it is when we come to September after the vote on September 20th. Right. One of the most interesting stats I found in your survey here, Bridget, as well, is that I the issue of uh, recruitment and retention of workers, how many businesses said this is their key challenge? It, I can't underscore this enough, and even anecdotally, I thought when I traveled a bit around the province this summer, uh, it really is faced, it is in so many different industries, and there's so many factors involved. I mean, yes, there was some of the government subsidies for those individuals, but many individuals have left industries like food and accommodation, and they've been retrained and reskilled and working in other industries as well. But we also have an immigration shortage right now. We have many workers who would have filled those jobs who are not coming back to Canada because they don't have visas right now. And so immigration is one of those factors that can really help fill those jobs. And we did see that come through in in the survey as well, where immigration would be one of those things that businesses and even the general population would support to help solve this challenge. Oh, so many interesting topics in there. Bridget, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, those physical aches and pains that seem to become more common as we get older. Well, with some workplaces lifting return to work restrictions, others maybe embracing a hybrid remote setup or work from home setup, the Alliance for Kinesiologists in Canada have now released some new guidelines to help you with those physical aches and pains that come with all of that. Our Raji Sohal has more. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, they're releasing the report of guidelines because it's time for a reset. So that means whether you've got a workstation at home, like myself, or you're returning to an office that's making you play uh, musical chairs and share desk space with people, that's going to have to get readjusted every time you show up, because I understand a lot of offices are doing that. Their main advice is that being sedentary, is the worst for your overall health. Here's Kathy Sharkey. She's the uh, president of the Canadian Kinesiology Alliance. Sedentary time is time that is spent sitting and not being active. What's recommended for Canadians is to um, get 150 minutes of activity per week. And unfortunately, many Canadians do not meet these standards. So what we want people to do is get up and moving, walking, cycling, any type of 
activity around the house, even gardening, will increase their ability to reduce the risk of those diseases and also reduce the risk of impacts of COVID because people that are physically active are at less of a risk of developing severe COVID outcomes. Yeah, Simi, I've always worked out. I've always exercised daily and I have never given it a thought until the pandemic. And the pandemic made me think about exercise um, in part because exercise makes our immune systems healthier. So I was thinking about it more, but I got to say, thinking about exercise has made it less fun for me. <laughs> oh, really? Just like and that? The, just like just thinking just, about it. Just like that. I ran 70K a week for 10 years. No breaks. Loved it. Was such a runner. But the thinking about it, reassessing your situation, uh, the Alliance uh, of Kinesiologists says it right now is so important. They say, take stock of where you're able to fit in the exercise. Here's Kathy Sharkey again. Some people embraced activity when the pandemic hit and they had more time to do certain things their commutes were shorter and so they were able to take the time to um do some exercise and maybe go for a walk before they sat down at their computer unfortunately not everybody has embraced that a lot of people have really taken away their um commute and that means maybe not walking from the parking lot or maybe not walking to an extra bus stop or something like that He says that a return to work might mean that you lose all free time because you might be spending that time on a bus, SkyTrain, driving to work, that kind of thing. So she says, get creative with where you can fit in exercise and don't even necessarily think of it as working out. So it could be like a 15 minute walk after dinner. Um, And she said to break up the prescribed 150 minutes over the whole week, if that's what you have to do. If you only have time on the weekends, squeeze it in on the weekend. And her other tips were things like take stretch breaks while you're sitting at your desk or standing at your desk but she says no intermittent jumping jacks or (laughs) push-ups that kind of stuff is you're laughing but that that was actually me at the beginning of the pandemic all right let's let's squeeze in these jumping jacks push-ups they're not helpful they could cause injury which i can also attest to having done a uh, cartwheel for the first time in i don't know two decades a cart- so you just randomly did a cartwheel? No wonder you hurt yourself. My kids are, are practicing these things these days, and I want to keep up with them. So I was totally that mom at a park one day where I thought, meh, I can still do one of those, I think. And I can, but uh, maybe I shouldn't have tried doing it after no warm-up. You know, I know this has been a challenge too, because in this particular job, sitting for four hours right in front of this microphone, it really can lead to neck and shoulder problems. So I yes, definitely sympathize. Yes. Oh, it's ter- been terrible for me. So for the 10 years that I've been doing this, it's been an ongoing issue to mitigate that. So during the pandemic, what we did was we turned, uh, our daughter had moved out. So we, you know, we had her room and we turned it into like a workout room. So I put my yoga mat in there. I put like, you know, some weights in there, some stretchy bands, that kind of thing. And so having that designated space in the house, I feel like has made a huge difference. Amazing. So for me, it's been in my, uh, I kind of have a dressing room and it's not that much space whatsoever, but there's a large mirror there so I can uh, check my technique when I'm doing my yoga. And, and it helps to just do a little bit of yoga even every day. They say that all 
all and any exercise is helpful as long as it's not just sudden and extreme. And then I don't know if you use a standing desk because uh, we know those are all the rage these days, but they're great to keep you on your feet. And yet the Kinesiology Alliance does not recommend using them for eight hours a day. They say you should be using them for a max of four hours that can be broken up with using the chair like throughout the day um, at your desk, or you can just do four hours straight. The thing is, Simi, um, when you use a standing desk, it's easy to just uh, adopt bad posture yes. and even lean on your desk. I, this is what um, I was thinking, right? I was thinking about, it's like when you first have a child and you carry that child around on your hip all the time, and then you end oh, up yes. having like hip problems <laughs> and right the one side of your body kind of leans over. I feel like with a standing desk, that would also lead to similar issues. You're probably leaning to one side more. Yeah. So the Alliance suggests uh, asking for support uh, from your uh, employer work with someone in kinesiology who can help with the ergonomics, teach you how to use one properly so that you're uh, not creating new problems for your shoulder, back, neck, knees. And they also said don't accept working at your dinner table, which I was surprised to read people are still doing, uh, but a lot of folks are still just uh, working at their kitchen table and didn't bother to get an, a proper ergonomic office chair because they weren't sure how long this pandemic was going to last. Um, so that's creating problems for people. So the, they suggest asking your employer for some support there um, and to work with kinesiologists on, on fixing your setup. Yeah, make sure you got to look after yourself, right? Yeah, and they also mentioned that kinesiologists, I didn't know this, uh, they help with mental health and they've noticed a real link between depression and being sedentary. So if you start feeling the blues, get up and move, just go for a walk. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I know um, as different countries were experiencing uh, lockdowns, uh, there was a major surge, a huge popularity in doing virtual workouts and uh, working out online, there was a fellow in the UK who went viral and gained millions of followers in mere months. His name was is Joe Wicks, and he uh, offers this one called PE with Joe that got kids up and moving and their families up and moving. And again, people like they think about exercise and they right away think like, oh, it's got to be so hard and so hardcore and regimented. And it literally can just be yeah. getting up and going for a 15 minute walk around so your neighborhood this at is whatever where, pace is comfortable. This is where all those pandemic puppies come in handy, right? Get out and walk the dog. Uh, Raji, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks.